Amen. Thanks, Ken. Good morning. Man, it's great to see you all here this morning. If, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning and I haven't had a chance to introduce myself, my name is Jason Williams. I have the honor and privilege of being a lead pastor here at the church, serving uh, amidst a body of elders among whom Ken serves as well, six men, um, sold out for Jesus under the lordship of Jesus leading this church. And I would say, too, if you're visiting with us, if you look around, you're surrounded by um, what I would say one of the best church families I've ever experienced. This is uh, the Solid Rock Church family, and so welcome to our church. I'm glad you're here with us. We're going to be opening the Bible, uh, God's holy word, to Revelation 21 this morning to wrap up our Revelation series, so I invite you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, I didn't bring one with you, it's okay, you'd like to follow along, we put Bibles under the seats around you. Uh, should be a black hardback Bible under a seat, your seat, or one right next to your seat. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you. We want you to have a copy to take with you um, even after you leave the service. So welcome, glad you're here. We'll get started in Revelation 21 in just a minute. Uh, one brief announcement, uh, and this is, uh, particularly pertains to our members uh, or those who are about to become members. Um, in addition to all the great ministries we have going on around the campus, men's and women's and kids and Awana and you heard from, uh, from Brian Lamb, a prayer class starting up uh, next Sunday. We also offer ministry training for those um, who are called to specific areas of, of, of ministry. And one of the uh, trainings that we offer is a nine-week class on biblical counseling. And so um, this is for members or those who are about to go through the next Connect class and become members. The next Connect class is February 21st and 28th. Um, you have to be a member to serve in this ministry. We just want to know a little bit about you and know that you're committed before we send people your way. Um, but it's a nine-week training that takes place twice a month in February, twice in March, twice in April, twice in May, and then one time in June. So it's a nine-part class. Um, there is, there's a reading, there's a lecture, and there's a practicum that go along with it. Um, but this is our way of equipping you to the ministry God's called you to, uh, whether it's formal counseling or it's just informally. God just keeps sending people into your life at Starbucks or at work or somewhere or family members. And so this is a way to, for us to equip you. If you are interested, we need you to sign up, though. There's a limited number of spots. And so there's a sign up at the Connect Corner. There's a column back here in the Connect Corner that has um, a, a sign-up sheet table there. If you would just sign up for that class and make sure we have at least your email address, we can get you all that you'll need to know for that class coming up. It starts on February the 10th, Wednesday night, February the 10th. So please sign up for that if you're interested. Okay, well, we're ready to get started in Revelation 21 to bring to a conclusion this series. Um, as we're getting ready to look at um, eternal life this morning, um, I'm reminded of a question that my youngest son asked me at bedtime prayers last night as I was kneeling next to his bed and said, uh, hey, buddy, you ready to say the prayers? And he looked at me and said, Daddy, I just really wish I could go to heaven and live with God right now. And, uh, and so that blessed my heart. And I said, well, son, I'm excited that you want to do that. And guess what? You can. You can one day. And he said, well, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go be with God right now. And, and, then, uh, and then so I gave it a few minutes. He said, but but I'm going to miss you. And then I said, well, well, son, um, it's okay. Daddy's going to be there too. And his eyes lit up and he got more excited about heaven. And he said, you're going to be there too. I said, yeah. He said, well, you'll get up early in the morning. You'll cook breakfast. I'll get dressed. I'll go outside and eat my breakfast. Then I'll come back in and we'll go to school together. And I said, son, it's better than that. There's no school in heaven. And whoo, I'm telling you, he was not ready to go to sleep at that point. So I'm thankful that my four-year-old is excited about heaven and the fact that I'll be there and that there's no school and potentially we'll be eating breakfast together. So 
Um, I don't know what excites you or um, mystifies you or, um, or rattles you about heaven. We're not going to probably cover it all today, but we are going to look at God's word, Revelation 21 into 22, as God's word presents to us what eternity is going to look like in terms of purpose and what is going to be there. And so um, I, I want to start with just some recap. So this is our last day for this um, high-tech uh, timeline behind me. So if you're visiting with us, let me just help you out. This timeline behind me represents both the timeline of human history and also a framework of your Bible, beginning in Genesis, ending in Revelation. We understand that in the beginning, God creates mankind, and with that, he sets in motion human history, a history that's measured by a clock, history that's measured in days and weeks and seasons and years and centuries, right? And so that was set in motion at, at creation. But we also know that what God created in the beginning was, according to God, very good. And along with being very good, creation was created with a specific purpose and ultimately to reflect the glory of its creator. And we know that at the pinnacle of creation, God creates man and woman, specifically created, set apart in his image to reflect or bear his image here on earth. And so this idea of being an image bearer is one that, um, that is, that is uh, very significant in many cultures in human history. Um, the idea of being an image bearer we find in ancient cultures where a king would in different villages or tribes or small cities, he would set up images of himself to remind his subjects, right, an image of himself of that he's the king, he's the lord over this community, that there was a higher authority. We see this play out all the way until uh, even the Roman culture does this, and in, 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 in not just in little statues, but in on money and currency. There's emblems of whoever's in charge, and even here in the U.S., right, our dollars, our coins bear witness of a higher authority. And so this idea of an image bearer, right, is, is, is intrinsic to all of human history, but it originated at creation. God created you and I to actually be the image bearers, that as you and I lived our daily lives, went about our daily routines, we would serve as an image of the high king, of the high, the high priest, the God of the universe, that in us, in each other, we would see an image of him specifically. The problem is that shortly after creation, those of us who were set apart, human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, we rebelled and we sinned. The trees didn't sin. The rocks didn't sin. The mountains didn't sin. The birds didn't sin. We sinned, Adam and Eve. And at that moment, something significant happened. This amazing relationship, God communing with man and woman, Adam and Eve with the privilege of walking in, the presence of God, seeing his face and not dying, walking in this beautiful fellowship. It was severed and broken at the fall. When rebellion set in, a fracture set in between the relationship between man and God, and we see this also play out between man and man. Many of us bear the, right, the testimony of that even today. And so what happens at this point in human history and in the Bible is the shadow of death is cast across the human history timeline. We work through the Old Testament, we get to the Gospels, this, this, this position between Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. God sends his son, as we just sang, to come down and be a rescuer for us, to rescue us from the shadow of death that's lingering over us. And at the same time, he launches his church. He ascends back to the Father, and now we're waiting. The church, we are God's kingdom here on earth, awaiting his return. Well, he will make all things new. And last week, we made it to Revelation 20, where he finally puts death to death. Death dies. He brings to an end this shadow 
of, <coughs> excuse me, of death at the return of Christ. And so now we're ready to look at what's next then. What happens beyond this point extending forward into the future for all eternity? And one of the things that we also have noted this, that the entire Bible is really leaning forward to that moment. As you read your Old Testament, there's a sense of leaning forward, anticipation of God making all things new. We even read in Romans 8 that creation itself is longing right now and groaning, awaiting what? The return of the king, the adoption of sons, when creation itself will be made new. Right now, that groaning plays out in all kinds of ways. Volcanoes erupt, earthquakes shake the earth, hurricanes hit the shore, Tornadoes spin down and rip up communities, fires devastate. Creation itself is longing for all things to be made new again. And when we say new, we mean perfect, perfect harmony, perfect ecosystem, perfect fellowship and community between one another and with God himself. And that's where we are in the story. So we're going to start this in Revelation 21, verse 1. Here we go. So death has been put to death. Satan has been cast and bound and cast into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What an incredibly important set of verses in understanding most of your Old Testament. See, most of the Old Testament is hinging on this promise made to Abraham, where God said to Abraham, through you I'm going to build your family into a great nation, and through that nation I'm going to bless all other nations, and you'll have your own geographical land. And at the center of that geographical land will be a city called Jerusalem. She will be like a daughter to me. And in Jerusalem is where I'll place my temple, the place that will house my presence and, and, in a way that, that a priest can interact with my presence once a year, but the people can't, Right? And so Jerusalem sits as a, as a significant place in the Old Testament. But what we learn from the New Testament, especially Hebrews 11, is that that Jerusalem was just a testimony of a better Jerusalem to come. That, that it wasn't actually that Jerusalem that Moses was looking forward to, but a better Jerusalem not made with human hands. And so the Jerusalem here on earth is just a foreshadowing of a better one. And this is what we're reading about. And I love the personification of Jerusalem here, like a bride adorned. See, because to be a city is not about being buildings or having a geographic location. You're not a city unless you have a people. And so when you hear city, don't think buildings and skyscrapers and houses and neighborhoods and streets. And and will those things be a part in some way, the structure, be a part of what you see and experience in heaven? I think so. But that's not what makes it a city, right? Right? If, it's, if it doesn't have people, it's a ghost town. But what makes it a city is the fact that people will be there. And so it's a holy city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this, this idea of God's desire to, to, to gather around himself a city is, is rooted all the way back in creation. God sends man out with a purpose to have dominion over the earth and to multiply Right? To multiply, to reproduce, create community here on earth under his kingship. 
So the original creation of, of Eden was God setting in motion a kingdom. Things get derailed. And from the moment of the fall going forward, we've been pretty good at pursuing our own kingdoms rather than being a kingdom unto God. And so this idea is, 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 is deeply rooted in the Old Testament, deep in human history. And we see this play out in the Old Testament through these proclamations that God makes. In Exodus 19, right before the Ten Commandments is given in formal form, uh, in Exodus 19, God has rescued the people of Israel out of slavery. And he says to them in verse 5, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, this is Exodus 19, 5, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God, letting people on earth know that he desired to build for himself a kingdom here on earth of, of loyal people, a holy people. Now, we get to the New Testament and we see at the cross that one of the primary implications of the cross is, is my personal salvation to God. I have a restored relationship with God. I pray and my prayers don't hit the ceiling anymore. God hears my prayers. The Holy Spirit interceding on my behalf speaks back to me and guides me through life. But we also see at the cross another implication is restored community here on earth. We were reading in uh, the leadership team meeting this past Tuesday. I was meeting with our leadership team, and we were studying the word together, looking at community from a biblical perspective. And we spent some time in Ephesians 2. Let me just read a few of the verses we read. Starting in verse 13, speaking of the community we have now in Christ, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We read that verse, and I asked the leadership team, what do you think that coming near looks like, and what does it mean? And and, uh, and, and quickly, leadership team jumped on the fact that this means that you and I were brought near to each other. See, when I am saved, when, I, when Jesus becomes the Lord of my life and, and reconciles this relationship with God, I come near to the cross. I cling to the promises of the cross. But when I get there, I look up and I find you there. And so as God and I draw near and you and God draw near, we actually draw near to one another. And that's the heartbeat of this Ephesians 2 passage Verse 14 says, for he being Jesus himself is our peace who made us both one and has broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Made us both one. I think that sounds familiar. It sounds like Genesis 2, the original state of man. Adam and Eve were two that became one. And so that imagery is describing our relationship with one another. And then as he goes on, verse 16, and, and might reconcile us, you and I, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's a description of what's taken place in an eternal way for you and I. Think about that. I mean, this supersedes church membership. It supersedes friendship. It supersedes whether or not I like you or not. Right? Those, those, those aren't variables here. You and I, if we're both in Christ, have been reconciled. And any hostility, any reason for you and I to not get along has been killed at the cross. It's good marital advice. Right? Good marital advice. 
our arguments between one another as spouses or even brothers and sisters in Christ, at best, we're trying to resurrect something that's been killed already. We're trying to make up something, right, that's not really even there anymore. Now, going forward, um, we looked also this last week um, at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, Peter's going to say, as a result of the cross, here's a description of community. Listen to this. Starting in verse 9, but you are a chosen race. Which race is he talking about here? White people, black people, brown people? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What nation is he talking about here? Israel or United States or who's he talking about here? A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'll tell you what ethnicity and nationality is talking about. Everybody who has been called out of darkness into light. That's our ethnicity. That's our nationality. That's the color of our skin here, if you will. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I love this. So God's intention from the beginning is to create a people unto himself in the garden. Things become fractured. Man sets out on his own journey in his own directions, trying to build his own kingdoms. Over a period of time, we have groups of people gathering in language, certain language groups and colors of skin and ethnicities, and it becomes nationalities, and, and that's the earth we have today, right? That's the earth we have today. And along with that, divisiveness comes a lot of racial tension. It's not new, okay? It's not new. Hostility between people of different colors of skin is not new. Now, I've often said... One of the things that breaks my heart about racial reconciliation is that here in the United States of America, at least in a formal sense, that the church seems to be the last remaining segregated institution. Now, walls are beginning to crumble, thankfully, right? But it hasn't been that long ago where if you were a white person, you were expected to go to the white church. If you were a black person, you were expected to go to the black church. It breaks my heart, right? I mean, that, that movement has passed. Men, men and women are no longer identified or valued by their ethnicity, the color of their skin. How come in the church we can't bear witness to that? If not for practical reasons, theological reasons. Now, I want to mark something that's taking place in Revelation that I think is incredibly significant. So as Revelation unfolds starting early on, as the people on earth gather, we gather as a people from every tribe, language, and tongue. So up until this point, as we gather together as the people of God, we are still bringing with us a sense of identity, of ethnicity, and tongue. But now we've made it to eternity, and notice that description has dropped off. We're not described any longer as a people from every tribe, language, or tongue. Eternally, right? We are one people, one race, one nation. It's so important to read what God is revealing to John here in the new heaven and the new earth. It's a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I have no idea if at this point in time there's still going to be different skin colors, but I can tell you this, there are not different nationalities at this point. We will step into eternity as one people. Had a, uh, overheard a, a conversation between my two boys um, a couple months back. They both knew we were in the Revelation series, and my oldest son 
Um, he's the, uh, he's the, the self-proclaimed educator among the two. He always takes it upon himself to educate his little brother. And he was teaching some theology in the back seat uh, about heaven and about how Satan loses. And, 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 and the four-year-old Calvin, he was just intrigued. And like, really? And like, Hudson's like, yeah, G- Jesus is gonna, just going to beat up Satan. And he, Satan's going to lose. And they were like, yeah, if I saw Satan, I'd just punch him in the face. And they were just going to town on all this talk. And then, and then Hudson, the eight-year-old, says, oh, and, and did you know that we get new bodies? He was talking about the resurrection to Calvin, and, and then it got quiet for a minute, and Calvin's wheels started turning. It's our four-year-old. He's spinning, he's spinning, he's spinning. He says, Daddy, is that true? We get new bodies? And I said, yeah, son, for everybody who believes in Jesus, we'll get new bodies. Doesn't that make you excited? He said, Daddy, can I get a black one like my friend Isaiah at school? <laughs> when? Right there. Right? I consider that a parenting win. I don't know who taught him that. But I'm so thankful that that's what, that he expressed that out of his heart. Can I have a black one like my friend Isaiah? What do I say to that? Sure. Take that up with Jesus. He's the one who gives us the color of skin. But I love that heartbeat. At this moment in eternity, we'll be one people. Right? There will be no more racial tension. All hostility will truly be put to death. Man. Man. What a beautiful moment. If you're taking notes, in God's eternal kingdom, all who have placed their trust in Jesus will become the holy city of God. All who have trusted in Jesus will become the holy city of God, adorned in beauty and splendor. I don't know what color our skin is going to be, but we will be beautiful. At least according to our husband, Jesus, he will look at us as a bride adorned for a wedding. That's what he'll see when he sees you and I. Verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is the voice of God, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What was true in Genesis 2, we read the account of God interacting with Adam, speaking to him. We have God's voice in quotation marks where he's speaking to Adam, interacting with Adam, giving him instruction and counsel bringing him a helper suitable. That whole Genesis 2 account, right, indirectly reflects this time in human history where man was able to walk in the presence of a holy God, unfettered, right, no obstacles in the way, perfect communion, just like you and I are looking at one another right now. But after the fall, something happens significant. Just two two books into your Bible in Exodus 33, you don't have to turn there, God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Before the fall, Adam and Eve could walk and stand in the presence of God, commune with him, speak with him, behold his glory, and live. But what was the curse? If Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. We talked about that last week talked about the implications of that death and how that death has now been killed at the return of Jesus. And so with that comes now what? A restored opportunity to walk and be in the presence of a holy God. 
no obstacles, unfettered, no sin in the way. Throughout the whole Old Testament, God's presence was revealed in, in things that indirectly reflected his glory, clouds and fire. The temple housed his presence, but it, it was veiled behind a really thick curtain. And only the high priest could go in there once a year. And if, if he had any sin in his life at all, he would fall down dead and they would drag him back out with a rope. At the cross, we see what? Not only is our sin nailed to the cross in Jesus, but the temple curtain is torn and a new temple is established. And now the new temple is personified because the new temple is not a building, it's you and I. We are the temple of God. We bear witness and we house the presence. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you if you're in Christ. But we're looking at a day when everything is restored, where we're able to stand in his presence and actually behold the glory of his face and not die. Yeah, and not die. Original creation. In God's eternal kingdom, all who have placed their trust in Jesus will enjoy the unfettered presence of God. <clears throat> no interruptions, no obstacles. Nothing in the way. No hoops to jump through. No priest to go in first. You, don't, you won't need me to speak on your behalf to God. Right? You get to stand in the presence of God. Unfettered. Verse 4. As a result... He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Why? The former things have passed away. Now this is a really good summary of last week's sermon. So if this is something you want to learn more about, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon on the death of death. And this is a summary of that, that when death dies with it, dies all of its nasty implications, weeping, mourning, crying, pain, all these things go with it. But what I want you to see today is when death dies, it gives way at that moment to eternal life. See, right now, you and I stand on the promise of eternal life. Adam and Eve were created to live eternally. When death entered physically, they experienced death, but spiritually speaking, they did not because they were created as eternal beings. And this will be the moment when our eternal state is now unfolding. It now takes place where our spiritual soul is, right, completely and permanently established with a physical body eternally living as we were created to live. Jesus reminds us in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have what? You know it. What? Eternal life. So the promise of Jesus is not primarily trying to make my, my life here on earth better. That's a false gospel, right? If you trust Jesus, he'll make you wealthy, give you lots of friends, you'll always be healthy as long as you have enough faith. That's a false gospel. The promise of Jesus is for eternal life. My 80 plus or minus years here on earth is chump change, right? If I truly am in Christ, my, the, the motto of my life should be, God, use it as you will. Use my 60, 70, 80 years however you will, right? Spend it. 
Spend it however you will that the, that the most people could experience what I'm going to be experiencing eternally. So the death of death gives way to eternal and abundant life. Jesus makes this promise. The, the enemy comes to still kill and destroy, but I've come to give you life and life what? Abundantly. In 1 John 2, 25, we're reminded, and this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. That is the promise. We are now... Right, getting a sneak peek here in Revelation 21 and 22 of what Jesus actually promised, eternal life. In God's king, eternal kingdom, Jesus will put death to death and restore eternal and abundant life. Why do I use the word restore? Because he's restoring our original created state. He will restore eternal and abundant life. For, for a brief moment, Adam tasted this. He was tasting this abundant life in the garden. Adam, look around you. You're free. Eat anything you will. One thing I ask you not to do, one command I give you, don't eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. Before Adam ate from that tree, the only knowledge he had was good, abundant life. And God's restoring it here. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Or daughter and daughter. Now, the opening of these verses, write this down. It's like a story is being written, right? Write this down, John. Here's how I want to end my story. And he says, it is done. This is the final chapter, John, to my story. I'm the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. That's why the story of human history is also the same story as the Bible. God is unfolding his story of redemption. And your story and my story, right, we're just a small little part in a much bigger story. And Jesus is saying at this moment to John as he gives this revelation, I'm the beginning and the end. And we've made it to the end. All things are done. It's complete. The redemption story is finding its final chapter here. And so up until this point, between the beginning and the end, between the fall right, and the restoration, we have this groaning from creation. The psalmist laments in Psalm 13.1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He's saying is, how long will this shadow of death and its corruption and its evil and its, right, its darkness and its shame, how long will that hang over me, God, before you bring it to an end? In Revelation, we, we also read about the martyrs with that same heartfelt prayer. They cried with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on Earth And so creation groaning is, this is the song of creation. How long, O Lord, before you make all things new? I want to introduce you to a word. It's the word eucatastrophe. I've used it a couple times here in previous sermons. It's a word that was actually made up by um, Tolkien, one who wrote The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. 
And it's actually from, from a Greek background, the word you meaning good and catastrophe uh, meaning just like it sounds, catastrophe or disaster. And what Tolkien noticed about all good stories is that there was a good disaster when everything was just snowballing and coming to this place of hopelessness and this story is just going to really, really, really end dark, all of a sudden there's this unexpected turning, right? So in The Lord of the Rings, it was in a, it was in a young hobbit, right? The smallest of creatures. This idea of a eucatastrophe is the idea that in, in fairy tales, they get to that moment of darkness and it's just in that moment of darkest darkness that what? A light comes, a light breaks through. A new day dawns and hope lives again. And so what we're reading here, according to Tolkien, and I would say even I would agree with this, is this is the, the, the greatest eucatastrophe of any story ever. Matter of fact, here's a quote from Tolkien. He says, I coined the word eucatastrophe. And he explains it. It's the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I was led there to the view that it produces its peculiar effect when it is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature, chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint and suddenly snapped back in. It perceives that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. And then Tolkien says, and I concluded by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible. It's a beautiful quote. Go look it up because he goes on to talk about the mingling of joy and sorrow in that moment. But the idea that when Jesus resurrected from the grave, right, from Friday to Sunday was the darkest dark in this story, if you will. It was. At the moment when God sends his son to be our savior to rescue us for a brief moment, it looks like he loses. What hope is there in that? If the best that God had to offer doesn't fix us, Friday night, Saturday, and the beginning of Sunday was what I would say the darkest moment in human history. But with the resurrection comes the greatest eucatastrophe known to the, to human, the human story. At the resurrection, right, a new day dawns. A light of hope once again pierces through. The darkness isn't completely done yet, but you and I walk in the hope of what? The resurrection, that we may join him one day. And then this set of verses ends with this promise, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Man, I love this part of what's being expressed here. Um, in some ways, this verse is alluding to Jesus' promise of, of being a living water, that when you draw from his will, it won't run dry. But there's also part of this promise that we just read rooted in the Old Testament in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, the invitation from God. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, those of us who are spiritually bankrupt and broke, come and buy and eat. Well, how are you going to do that? Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why? How are we going to do that? Because Jesus has already paid the tab. So this is rooted in Jesus as our living water well that does not run dry. And we draw from that well a water that you and I can't afford to pay for. Matter of fact, as you, as you bring your payment, Jesus says, tell you what, set that down. That's just going to get in your way. Come to me. Come to the water and drink living water without payment. 
This is a beautiful proclamation of the gospel. Reminds me of what Paul says over and over again in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verse 3. In Christ, in him, actually I think this is probably verse 7. Yeah, in him we have redemption through his blood. What does that mean? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? How good you and I've been? No, according to the riches of his grace. And then I love the next chapter. Ephesians 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, we're talking about eternity. Paul's writing about eternity, about our salvation. He says that in the coming ages, he being Jesus might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's drawing from the well without payment. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. He can afford to get every one of us there. Right? No, not a person on earth from Adam from the first Adam to the last Adam who's ever born, will ever have enough religious or moral merit to stand before a holy God and not die. So it's the merit of Jesus, right? That you and I cling to his payment on our behalf so that you and I come and we drink a water that we can't afford. That is salvation. That is eternal life. In God's eternal kingdom, God will make all things new by the riches of his grace. By the riches of his grace. When we behold the new heavens and the new earth, we will be beholding a creation, right, that comes from the heart of God's grace and mercy. There is nothing about this story that obligates God to do this. Not the faithfulness of Abraham, or Moses, or you, or me. There's not one component of this story that would make that make sense. What would make sense is for the story to end in catastrophe. That would make sense, right? But it is by the riches of God's grace that he spends it and creates a new heavens and a new earth and makes all things new, including you and I. You don't want this version of me to mess up your eternity. I'm telling you, I'll, I'll mess it up in a hurry. I need to be made new. You need to be made new by the riches of his grace. Now, verse, we're going to go to verse 9. We're going to try to wrap up chapter 21 and make it to 22 before we end. So I'm going to read several verses here. Again, reiterating what we read earlier. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. So this is connected to what has been unfolding in Revelation. Right, We had seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, had angels involved. One of those angels is still on the scene here, the one who had the seventh bowl. Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. So you get this imagery, New Jerusalem is descending. John is getting to behold it. This angel is invited to come watch it. And the way John describes it, it was so radiantly glorious that it was like, it was like light reflecting off of a precious jewel. And then we get an, an explanation why when we get down to verse 22. And I saw no holy temple in the city. Well, this is a different Jerusalem. There's no holy temple here. Well, why not? For its temple is the Lord God 
the Almighty, and the Lamb. So, for all that you may or may not be looking forward to in heaven, can I tell you the thing that you should be most excited about? God himself is there. Will, will we have physical bodies? Absolutely. Will we get to fish and hunt and play golf? Man, I'm not going to make that promise. We get to sing songs with real voices and vocal cords and lungs, and there's going to be physical things that we do. Maybe golf. I don't know. Maybe baseball. We'll see. I don't know, maybe some crocheting. I don't know. But here's what I, here's what I do know. He's going to be there. And this glory that we see just radiating out of Jerusalem, it's not the buildings. It's the glory of the Lord, the fact that he's there. Look at what we read as we continue on. In 22, there was no temple because God himself is there. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Don't need any other source of light. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb, verse 24. And by its light will the nation walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. So now we have people walking in heaven, and the way we see how to walk around is the glory of the Lord. The sun, the sun tries to come up and shine light here, right? We're going we're gonna to say, go away. Your light is far too dim and not glorious enough. We prefer the light of Jesus himself here and that the kings, and this is this representation of, 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 of people here on earth. It's not that they're walking in their own glory. It's that they're walking in a reflection of his glory. Look, look at what happens next. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will no longer be night there, reflecting darkness and evil. There's no need to shut the gates here, right? No need to set the alarm. No need to make sure that the gates are locked and the garage door is down. Why? There's no evil here. There's no darkness, no night. And he goes on to say what? They will bring into, bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That's you and I. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, not only those who are written in the Lamb's, excuse me, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What we're reading here is what I think that Paul is getting at in Romans 8 when he talks about all those who have been called and justified and, and, and sanctified will also be glorified. It's not you and me walking around in our own glory. It's you and I walking back in restored state of creation as image bearers. You see that? On my face and your face, on your countenance and my countenance, on your heart attitude and my heart attitude, out of the words that come out of your mouth and come out of my mouth will be glory unto the Lord. We will walk around reflecting his radiant glory. I don't know if there'll be a golf course there, but if there is, it'll be beautiful and glorious. The glory of God will fill his eternal kingdom. The glory of God will fill his eternal kingdom. We're going to turn the page to Revelation 22, and we'll finish up here. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
No seasons here, just continually perpetual fruit. The leaves of the tree were for, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. We stop right there. So we had a, a river and a tree in the original garden. Now we have a river and a tree of life here. And this tree of life is our healing. No longer is there a curse, right? At the fall, there was a curse. The curse has now been lifted. The leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a new Eden. There's no mistake here in the story that we have all these connections to the garden. This is, in fact, a new and better Eden. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. One last remaining question. We asked this last week. How do I get in there? How do I get my name written in the book, right, of the Lamb? How do I enter in through these gates? No imagery of Peter here at the pearly gates, is there? That's kind of made-up fiction. Works good for cartoons and newspapers. I'll tell you how you get in there and how I get in there. The promise of the gospel, Galatians 3, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You try to make it that route, you'll, you'll fail miserably. For the righteous shall live by what? It's right there. What is it? Faith. The righteous shall live by faith. By the law but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you go that route, you've got to go that route perfectly. That's your, you've got, you got to own up perfectly. 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. This whole story, right, has been cursed since the fall. We've been rescued from that curse in Christ, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is how you get in. This is how you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life, by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. Any other route you take, you've got to be perfect at it. And I'm just going to go ahead and let you know, nobody's been able to do it. And the Bible's going to say nobody else is going to be able to do it besides Jesus to live perfectly in such a way that you would be able to stand before the holy presence of God and not die. The only way we get to do that is to be clothed in his righteousness. In God's eternal kingdom, those who have been made righteous through faith will enter into a better Eden and enjoy the presence of God forever. Why do I say a better Eden? I think there's gonna be so much, like if we can just maybe sit down with Adam and interview him, so much about the new Eden that's going to be like the, the, the Eden he experienced before the fall. Okay, Why I say it's better is because it's finally in an eternal state. It's an Eden that also knows a rescue. See, there was no, right, there was no 
rescue in the first Eden in case things went wrong. It was only don't let it go wrong. But now we will, right, stand in the new Eden, a better Eden, in the presence of the lamb who was slain. Our rescuer will be there with us perpetually, a better Eden, and we'll enjoy the presence of God forever. This is the promise of the gospel, by the way. There are so many more blessings that come from knowing Jesus, hope and purpose and joy and things that we can experience right now. Even though the curse hasn't been fully lifted, you can experience these things in Christ. But we're longing for the day where we fully experience them. Because why? You can still come down with cancer. You can still be struck with tragedy. Your house can still burn to the ground in a fire. Right? Because the curse has not been lifted yet. This is the promise of the gospel. When the curse becomes uncursed. Death dies, eternal life reigns. I want to end by praying for you this morning. I invite the worship team to come back down and continue leading us in singing. Um, As they come down, I want to encourage you to think about your response this morning. 